I'm Liz, your host and the wife and mom behind Unedited Motherhood. Together, we'll talk about all the struggles that we face as adults. Nothing is off limits. We'll uncover important truths and maybe even learn some tips to make our lives a little simpler and a lot more enjoyable. Thanks for joining me. Sometimes it can be difficult to find all of your favorite healthy pantry items at the same grocery store, or even visiting two or three stores. With your Thrive Market membership, you can find any healthy snack or pantry item you could ever want. You can shop by gluten-free, dairy-free, organic, AIP, vegan, and more. Thrive Market has something for everyone. And not just something, lots of things. They sell cookies, pasta and pasta sauces, salad dressing, nut butter, milk alternatives, granola, cooking and baking oil, coffee, soup, cereal, jelly, sugar, and sugar alternatives, chocolate chips, crackers, spices, dried fruit, nuts, and more. In addition to more than 2,700 food items, they also carry supplements, cleaning supplies, makeup, toiletries, and more, all on the natural spectrum. I have been using Thrive for over three years, and I still look forward to getting their boxes in the mail. Every order over $49 ships free, always. In addition, you can earn extra Thrive credit by supporting different featured brands each month. Not only do they have some of the best items on the market, but with your Thrive Market membership, you get these items at a discounted rate, making them cheaper than you could find them at the grocery store. Use my link in the show notes to receive 25% off your first order. Hello. Today we are starting a new series all about babies. I am so excited for this series. Um, having had two babies, I I feel like I have a lot to share or a lot that I'd like to share with you guys. Uh, so we're going to start with breastfeeding. I thought that was appropriate since I still am breastfeeding and I'm really passionate about it. I have an opening statement that I would like to share and it goes a little something like this. Moms have been breastfeeding babies for, well, since the dawn of time, yet there's still a stigma around breastfeeding, especially breastfeeding in public, and moms still lack the support they need to pump or nurse at work. Why is such a natural human function that literally sustains life so controversial? Why is breastfeeding support for working moms so poor? The history of breastfeeding has been shaped by shifting cultural norms, And that's what I want to dive into today. So I want to share a few quotes that I found about breastfeeding over the past few hundred years that I thought um, were interesting and some of them admirable and some of them um, not so much. Uh, First one, in 1812, William Buchan, a Scottish physician, thought that the child should be, quote, given freely what nature freely produces. And I think that's easily just one of the most simple statements that can be made about breastfeeding. Babies should be freely given what nature freely produces, period. Um, William Cobbett, a farmer and journalist, said, Of all the sights this world affords, the most delightful is a mother with her clean, fat baby lugging at her breast, leaving off now and then and smiling, and she half smothering it with kisses. 
And I thought that was precious and refreshing from a male perspective to recognize the incredible sight and experience of a mother breastfeeding her baby. However, in the same year, a writer named Jane Ellen Panton wrote, I myself know of no greater misery than nursing a child. Let no mother condemn herself to be a common or ordinary cow unless she has a real desire to nurse. I wonder what this woman experienced to give her such a negative and bitter depiction of what is really an incredible and miraculous blessing. But this is a situation that we're in right now. Some women think, my boobs are mine. They can be on formula. They don't need to be dependent on me. But they do. They're in your stomach for nine months. They need to be dependent on you for at least that long. You're their life giver. You brought them into this world. Your body biologically and organically creates sustenance for them to live on. It's full of everything that they need to sustain them for the first year minimum of life and beyond. What an honor and a privilege. There were others who also thought that breastfeeding was not adequate to nourish infants. In 1831, Lydia Child, who was a woman's rights activist and journalist, raised doubts on the quality of breast milk, suggesting that mother's milk might appear plentiful but have no nutritional value. However, Although she wrote a book about child-rearing, she never actually had any children or raised any children. And this is not all she had to say about nursing, actually. Despite the fact that she'd never done it, she went on in her book advising, For those mothers that continue to nurse, strict self-care is advised, including a cold saltwater shower or bath every morning. They were advised against excessive novel reading and to avoid all overheating from running, dancing, excessive fatigue, etc. Likewise, the indulgent of violent passions and emotions. It was believed that the child might have convulsions if fed after such excesses. Dr. Eric Pritchard, a child quote-unquote expert of the time, stated that lactation is far more likely to go wrong in a woman than a teetotal vegetarian nerveless cow. He advocated for a cow-like restrictive lifestyle, bland diet, rest, and no sexual emotion to spoil the quality of milk. Now, while I share these partially for a little bit of dark humor, how many of these beliefs actually still persist? There are many, many old wives' tales dictating what a mother that's breastfeeding may or may not eat. And if she wants to avoid colic in her baby or otherwise taint her milk, she needs to follow those protocols. So clearly there's a lot of thoughts here. Lactation is far more likely to go wrong in a woman than a nerveless cow. I mean, come on. Where does he get off coming up with that? Ridiculous. Anyway, quotes aside, that was a little fun intro to this topic. Um, I want to first kind of talk about the history of breastfeeding. This is just going to be a brief history. We'll touch more on a few of these things as we talk about other things in the episode. Breastfeeding began, you know, with the first humans. It was the only way to feed babies. If the mother couldn't produce breast milk, the baby would die. Um, Wet nurses um, came around pretty early on and they were around for centuries because there were always either women that couldn't breastfeed or mothers that died shortly after childbirth or child abandonment. Uh, So there were wet nurses employed to take care of babies. However, the history of wet nurses has its own complicated story, 
we won't get into that. Maybe in another episode we could talk about that. Flash forward thousands of years, around 1770, there was a device called a bubby pot that came around. This wasn't the first vessel used, but it was a newer invention uh, that was used to put cow's milk in in place of breast milk. Um, Then it wasn't for another, oh, 80 or so years when there was the first manual breast pump. So these um, vessels that were made were either for women that didn't want to nurse or for a woman that couldn't nurse, and they would use cow or goat's milk as an alternative. So in 1854, when the first manual breast pump was created, um, that was still kind of a slow progression because you had to hand express the milk, and that was still you know, a lot of work. The first electric breast pump wouldn't come out for another 70 years in the early 1920s. Let's back up back to 1854. 11 years after the first manual breast pump, in 1865, the first substantial infant formula came around. Now, this formula wasn't perfect, and breastfeeding was still the primary way to feed babies. It wasn't until 1924, about 60 years later, that Similac came out. This was a much more um, scientifically lab-created breast milk that had more of a similar composition to breast milk. About 30 years later, in 1956, breastfeeding was considered old-fashioned, and formula was now believed to be superior to breast milk. Doctors were recommending formula in place of breast milk, and breastfeeding was no longer encouraged to new mothers. A fun experiment to see how uh, relevant this information is to your circle of friends and family. Uh, Maybe ask some of your aunts and uncles or parents or grandparents what it was like breastfeeding in their age. Um, I know I've talked to my uh, my parents and my aunts and uncles and most of them that were having babies, um, even in like the 60s and 70s, uh, breastfeeding was not common. It wasn't recommended. They didn't teach you how to do it in the hospital. If you wanted to do it, you basically had to figure it out on your own um, and formula was just the way to go. About 35 years later, Medela sold the first hospital-grade pump so that moms could return to work and continue to feed their baby's breast milk. This was about 1990. Flash forward another 20 years, and this is only about 10 years ago now in 2010, the Amendment to Fair Labor Standards Act required employers to provide a lactation space other than a bathroom for nursing moms at work. And then just a couple of years ago, in 2018, Utah and Idaho legalized breastfeeding in public finally making it legal in all 50 states. So guys, yes, you heard that right. Breastfeeding your baby was not legal in public in all 50 states until just three years ago. That's crazy. That makes me want to shake people. (laughs) Okay, moving on. We're going to talk about breastfeeding guidelines. We're going to do the worldwide edition, but first we're going to take a look at the breastfeeding recommendations from our U.S. governing agencies. So first we have the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics. Breastfeeding is the recommended way to feed newborns and infants. The AAP advises mothers to breastfeed exclusively for the first six months of life and then to breastfeed along with adding solid foods to baby's diet for at least one year after birth. The AAP states that breastfeeding can continue for as long as mother and child wishes to do so. Sounds good. 
Now from a CDC, we have a quote. Breastfeeding provides unmatched health benefits for babies and mothers. It is the clinical gold standard for infant feeding and nutrition, with breast milk uniquely tailored to meet the health needs of a growing baby. We must do more to create supportive and safe environments for mothers who choose to breastfeed. This is by Dr. Ruth Peterson, the director of CDC's Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity. And the World Health Organization. They urge exclusive breastfeeding for the first six months of life with the continuation of breastfeeding along with solid foods for two years or longer. So while that all sounds great, the current statistics for how many parents are actually exclusively breastfeeding at six months and then 12 and 24 months do not reflect execution of these recommendations. The current rate of exclusive breastfeeding at six months is 24%. So if the AAP, the CDC, and the WHO acknowledge the incredible benefits of breastfeeding for both mom and baby, why is it that doctors were recommending formula from the get-go for so long? And why aren't these omnipotent government agencies doing more to ensure that babies are being breastfed. These organizations, alongside doctors, make sure they do all they can to ensure we're doing what's quote-unquote best for us regarding other what they consider to be important matters, like masks, vaccines, etc. While these agencies have claims on their websites that they're trying to increase the amount of moms breastfeeding, I think there is easily much more that they could do to ensure moms were educated and supported Um, during their breastfeeding experience. So like I said, the exclusive breastfeeding rate at six months of age for a baby is 24%. Terrible. It has had an uptick since the 1990s, which is good. The breastfeeding movement is making a comeback, but it does still have a long way to go. I think most moms want to breastfeed, but the problem is that our society does very little to support this. With the rise of women in the workforce since the mid-1900s, we've seen the breastfeeding rates decrease accordingly, especially with the formula endorsements from doctors. But even with breastfeeding making a comeback, our culture has not recognized the need for more support and accommodations for moms, especially working moms. Now let's see what the standards are around the world. In Scotland, mothers receive up to 52 weeks, 36 paid and 16 unpaid. Fathers get between one and two weeks as well. Parents also receive 52 weeks for adoption. In China, women receive a minimum of 14 weeks paid leave, different areas of China offering an additional 4 to 12 weeks leave based on the region that they're in. In Japan, mothers receive 6 weeks pre-baby and then 8 weeks post-baby. In Argentina, women receive 90 days or just over 14 weeks of leave. Women are not allowed to work past 30 days leading up to their due date. Nice. In Spain, women are allowed 16 weeks maternity leave and fathers receive five weeks. Also in Spain, women are allowed to work reduced hours while caring for children up until the age of eight. And mothers are allowed one paid hour off each day for breastfeeding and pumping for the first nine months of baby's life. In Russia, women receive 140 days, 70 days leading up to baby and then 70 days after baby. Women have the ability to extend their paternity leave for up to three years without the risk of losing their job. And lastly, in Sweden, parents receive 480 days of paid leave. 
either parent receiving a minimum of 90 of those days. Almost all of these countries' policies pay 90 to 100% of their salary and also a lot extra time for multiples or uh, complications with the baby as well. Now let's take a look at the U.S. Maternity leave in the United States is regulated by the U.S. labor law. The FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act of 1993, requires 12 weeks of unpaid leave annually for mothers of newborn or newly adopted children if they work for a company with 50 or more employees. Additionally, Several states have adopted laws extending the requirements of FMLA to smaller companies. For the majority of U.S. workers at companies with fewer than 50 employees, there is no legal right to paid or unpaid leave to care for a new child or to recover from childbirth. Studies show the current laws disproportionately impact minorities and low-income women who are less likely to take unpaid leave. Now, this is all below the 16-week minimum recommended by the World Health Organization. Isn't that ironic? The United States is one of the only countries in the world and the only OECD member that has not passed laws requiring businesses and corporations to offer paid maternity leave to their employees. As of 2017, there had been no significant changes in the proportion of women who received maternity leave in the past 20 years. The U.S. is the only high-income country to not offer paid maternity leave on a federal level. Paid leave is guaranteed in 178 countries, and the U.S. is not one of them. Well, I don't know what you think about all this, but I think it's absolutely pathetic, especially considering the U.S. leaves it up to the companies to pay the employees, making it almost impossible for small businesses to be able to pay mothers. Doctors and other... Authorities say, yeah, breastfeed and pump and take six weeks paid, if you're lucky, to bond with your baby. I'm like, hello, my baby's now a year old, and I cannot imagine having been away from him from the age of two or three months for eight plus hours a day. No thanks. Especially considering moms have to return to work to receive pay and to not lose their job. But then they have to pay someone to care for their baby as well. Especially for low-income families, this carries many detrimental implications. These families won't be able to afford the care that would be best for their children, requiring them to settle for less than the best for their babies. It's hard enough to nurse several times a day, let alone having to pump at work. Also, when you're at home with your newborn those first several weeks, seems like all you do is nurse a lot of days. Then add to that the need to produce even more milk to start saving it for when you return to work assuming you even want to return to work, then having to pump while you're at work. I mean, this is just cruel, right? Especially considering how easy it was for 2020 to be the year of working from home. You'd think that new moms would be able to work from home postpartum for an extended period of time before having to return to work so that they're able to spend more time with their baby. Maybe we'll see some women start to fight for that when they see how quickly companies were able to transition to work from home for other reasons. So I do want to touch just a little bit on wet nurses before we transition to talking about formula for just a second. Um, Wet nurses were a normal part of the social order throughout history. Uh, Those social attitudes to wet nursing varied as well as the social status of the wet nurse. In different countries around the world, wet nurses were treated drastically different. In some countries, they were honored as being part of the 
the fed baby's family and in other countries being enslaved and unable to care for their own children alongside the fed baby. In the 1700s and 1800s, wealthy women and royalty had wet nurses to feed their babies to distinguish themselves from the common people. But with the invention of formula, those who could afford to switched to the more manufactured approach. At the same time, society's views of food as a whole was shifting. By the 1950s, the general population believed food created in a lab was superior to the meals prepared at home. Baby formula was no exception. It naturally became the obvious option for those seeking more nutritious and sterile sustenance. As time went on, many doctors came to believe that even lab-created formula lacked the proper nutrition to produce healthy growing babies. So, a quote-unquote good mother in the 1950s usually swapped her baby's formula for commercialized baby food about one month after birth. Yikes! Attempts were made in the 15th century in Europe to use cow or goat milk. And this wasn't a new thing. It would probably been um, attempted long before that. Uh, But these attempts were always unsuccessful. In the 18th century, flour or cereal mixed with broth were introduced as substitutes for breastfeeding, but this was also unsuccessful. Improved infant formulas appeared in the mid-19th century, providing an alternative to wet nursing and even breastfeeding itself. In 1865, there was a substantial formula on the market. Now, this was still not a super popular thing. It might have been well-received because there were women that couldn't breastfeed or, you know, momless babies, but this formula still had a lot of issues. It was formulated to have a similar profile to breast milk, but it fell short and still was um, having negative health effects for the baby. In the 1890s, Dr. Raj of Harvard University developed a technique of diluting cow's milk formula to reduce the casein adding cream to increase the fat, and sugar or honey for sweetness. This is in an attempt to replicate the nutritional balance and digestibility of human milk. This formula gained popularity by 1907. Then just a few short years later, in 1924, Similac was birthed. This formula was specifically designed to have the closest composition to breast milk as possible, and it did a much better job than previous formulas. Alas, this is when formula really started to take off. And this is where we slide slowly into breastfeeding's deterioration. A quote from Chloe Fisher, who is an author, a senior midwife, and a lactation advisor at the breastfeeding clinic in Oxford, suggests that 60% of women who fail to breastfeed have suffered mismanagement by health professionals. She says, the history of what has happened in breastfeeding is mind-blowing. Man invented rules for breastfeeding with no clue of how the process works. The art of breastfeeding has been all but lost. Most of the information women are now given is complete poppycock based on the teaching at the turn of the century, which supposed the breast was a bottle. Health professionals don't realize how desperately the women in their care need information and support. So this coincides pretty well with the introduction of a substantial formula in 1924, During the early 20th century, breastfeeding started to be viewed negatively, especially in Canada and the United States, where it was regarded as a low-class and uncultured practice. The use of infant formulas increased, which accelerated after World War II. From the 1960s onward, breastfeeding experienced a revival, which has continued into the 2000s. 
However, the negative attitudes towards breastfeeding were still entrenched up to the 1990s and still to today. Now, real quick, before World War II, breastfeeding was still very common. However, afterward, the sexual focus shifted from women's legs, think Rita Hayworth, to pinup girls' breasts, think Marilyn Monroe and soft porn like Playboy. The result? A loss of perception in the breast as a functional organ. As an excerpt from the Bentley book published on Slate reads, As breasts became more sexualized, they became less functional more the purview of men as sexual objects and less the domain of infants and as a source of food. As this transformation continued, breastfeeding, especially in public, became less normal and more taboo. And by mid-century, most Americans attached a vague sense of disgust toward the practice. Now that breasts were primarily sexual, the idea of women breastfeeding infants, especially in public, but even in private, felt abnormal and destabilizing. Modernity apparently did not include breastfeeding women. By implication, breasts were for men and sex. If breasts are very sexualized, Bentley tells Romper, it's hard to think of them as mammary glands appropriate for feeding a baby. There's something very icky about crossing those two very different streams, sexuality and nurturing an infant. So that's one theory that people have as far as why breastfeeding started to take a nosedive in the mid-1900s alongside the you know, revolutionary introduction of formula. So from the 1930s to the 1960s, breastfeeding declined and most babies received neither breast milk or formula by age four to six months, producing a high incidence of anemia. Data is hard to derive, but studies indicate that from 1931 to 1935, more than 70% of firstborn infants were initially breastfed, and 40% of infants were breastfed for at least six months. However, about 10 years later, from 1946 to 1950, Initial breastfeeding of firstborn infants had decreased to 50% and then only 20% were breastfed for at least six months. A survey of hospitals carried out in 1945 indicated that 60 to 70% of babies were initially breastfed before leaving the hospital. However, 25 years later, in the 1970s, only 25% of babies were initially breastfed before leaving the hospital. And by two to three months of age, no more than 14% continued. The remainder were fed formula, which was replaced by cow's milk at four to six months of age. We think of formula as a relatively new invention over the last hundred years, but seeking breast milk substitutes has long been a human enterprise, however unsuccessful many of those attempts were. Breast-shaped clay bottles have been found in ancient sites in Europe that date back to 3500 B.C., Some historians believe that cows and goats were actually domesticated for the purpose of providing a human breast milk substitute for babies. Infants may have suckled directly from these animals or been given human fashion devices, very roughly akin to our modern baby bottles. Cow and goat milk substitutes largely fell out of favor when people learned that babies do not thrive on these human milk alternatives. Records from 18th century Europe, for example, show that babies given milk from these animals early on suffered greater risks of diarrhea and death compared to those fed human breast milk. So that kind of is a broad painted picture of the history of breastfeeding, kind of a little bit around the world and in the United States. Um... I found it pretty fascinating. I knew a lot of this, but even doing my homework, I was still astounded at some of the things that I read and some of the statistics, which I am going to link for those of you that 
want to check sources or do your own further research, I'm going to link all of the articles that I read and pulled from for this article at the, at the blog for this episode at uneditedmotherhood.com. So we're going to move along to the benefits of breastfeeding, both for mom and for baby. Oxytocin, which is the love hormone, is released while breastfeeding. This actually happens in both mom and baby, causing their bond to be deep and strong. Next, it's free. No additional costs unless you choose to invest in... um, like a breast pump, which a lot of times your insurance carriers will provide for free for you. Number three, milk is always ready for your little one. No need to heat water or milk or run to the store for more formula. Number four, breastfeeding helps baby feel sleepy, secure, and loved. This is part of the oxytocin hormone release. Number five, it's rich in antibodies, vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients and also has the perfect composition of protein, fat, and carbs for baby. Breast milk also helps mother's uterus contract. Uh, This process helps the uterus shrink back down to its normal size and its normal place post-baby. Also, breastfeeding can help mothers lose baby weight quicker because the babies are nursing, nursing, and your body is working so hard to produce breast milk your body is shedding calories at a much faster rate. Uh, Breastfeeding reduces the risk of disease for moms, and it reduces the risk of disease, infection, and sickness for babies, including, but not limited to, obesity, ear infections, type 2 diabetes, colds, diarrhea, other gastro issues, and even infant mortality. Number 10 supports the baby's optimal brain development. Breastfeeding can boost baby's brain growth by 20 to 30%. Breastfeeding also helps develop baby's immune system. And then next, which is very important, it's easy on baby's tummy. Babies have very immature digestive systems and most formulas, especially containing um, cow's milk and other proteins, they're very heavy on baby's digestive system. Breast milk is very gentle on baby's system and it helps the immune system and digestive system develop. And lastly, but definitely not least, breast milk composition changes to meet baby's needs. Several things influence these changes. The time of day, the baby's age, mom's diet, and time since the last feeding are a few, but This is so cool, guys. The breast milk actually changes and has um, different antibodies and different levels of protein and fat depending on the time of day and depending on baby's immune system. It is just so cool. So I'll touch briefly on nursing on demand versus scheduled feedings. Um, With my firstborn, we followed the book Baby Wise. For those of you that don't know, this is a sleep training book written by two pediatricians, two male pediatricians. A friend actually turned me on to it after she successfully used this method with her first child. I read it and did the protocol with my daughter and it worked really well. I breastfed on demand until she was however many weeks old and then with baby wise, the idea is that you feed them right when they wake up 
Then you have playtime, and then they go to sleep independently in their own crib. With this protocol, baby is only eating right when they wake up in order to get a full belly. Uh, My daughter actually took really well to the schedule and by 12 weeks was sleeping 12 hours at night. During the day, she would still nurse several times, but by six months, she was nursing four times a day on a regular schedule. This was maintained until she was a year old when my milk dried up and she didn't nurse anymore. With my second baby... I had a stronger breastfeeding bond from a very early age. When he was a few weeks old, the conversation came up about using the BabyWise protocol with him. Uh, This time around, though, something didn't feel right about it. My intuition was telling me no. But because it had worked so well with my daughter, we tried it again. But it did not go well. He did not take to the sleep schedule idea. He wanted to nurse all the time and especially to sleep. I decided to lean into what he was telling me, and I'm so glad that I did. Because he nursed on demand, we practiced safe co-sleeping, and this was the best decision we ever made for him. There is a closeness in my relationship with him that was missing with my daughter at this age. While over the years, my daughter has turned into a very, very affectionate and loving child, and we have a super close relationship, that piece was missing from infancy in the way that I've experienced it with my son. Once I'd gotten my daughter on the baby wise schedule, breastfeeding became more like a task to check off than an organic relationship. And looking back, I can see now how the forced schedule took that natural bond building activity and made it tactical. So we're just going to skip past the fact that I just brought up some super hot button issues and move right along to breast milk uses. So I have heard uh, breast milk called a miracle elixir, and I love this term. Um, Not only is breast milk incredible for baby's brain development, nutrition, and growth, it can also be used for purposes other than feeding babies. Breast milk can be used for all these instances and more. Pink eye, eczema, diaper cream, face and body moisturizer, teething popsicles, etc. There's a woman that I was affiliated with that had an extreme overabundant supply of milk. She donated multiple times over the couple of years that she nursed her son, and she donated thousands, yes, thousands, of ounces of breast milk. She'd fill a deep freezer with it every so often, donate it all, fill the deep freezer again, donate it all again, over and over. And this is all in addition to her breastfeeding her child as well. Because she had so much milk, she started learning all these different ways that you could use it. The practice that she was most excited about that she shared about a lot was her breast milk facials. By taking just a few drops and rubbing it on her face, she claimed that this helped her skin become infinitely smoother. On one occasion... My son started showing signs of an eye infection. His eyes were constantly tearing up like he had a clogged duct. They were also red. Uh, I thought of this woman and her ingenuity and was inspired to try her method of using breast milk for ailments. I would just put a couple drops. I would express it from my breast into his eye, and within hours, they cleared up. This actually happened on two separate occasions that were several weeks apart, and um, on both occasions... By the next day, his eyes were completely back to normal. 
So lastly, we are going to address a couple of common issues with breastfeeding and FAQs. So how many minutes does baby need to nurse to get a full belly? When I had my daughter, my first child, I was told to do everything I could to keep the baby awake long enough to get a full belly and that when they were done, they would pull off on their own. The first two to three weeks of my daughter's life felt more like six months. I would nurse and she would fall asleep. So I'd try to wake her up and she'd fall asleep. Uh, I started to rub ice cubes on her little feet or take her clothes off to keep her nursing. If she fell asleep, I'd wake her up. Uh, This would continue for about 45 minutes on each side before she would pull off. Um, You may think, what in the world were you thinking? And looking back, now I realize this is insane. But as a new mom, I didn't know any better. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do, what I was misled to do unintentionally. I would just keep nursing for about 45 minutes on each side. And by the time I was finished with both breasts, it was about time to start the cycle over. This was, you know, the first two to three weeks of her life when you're supposed to be nursing every two to three hours. So finally, after two weeks, I had had enough. I decided I couldn't do it anymore. So I called a lactation counselor and on day 16, um, we, we took her in. Um, this was covered through the hospital, um, through our insurance. So I took my baby, they weighed her, then they had me breastfeed her for five minutes on one side, and then they weighed her again. I was astounded. Within those five minutes, she drank more than 90% of the milk in my breast. The lactation consultant you know, advised me to nurse for a few more minutes on that same side and then weighed her again. And from the time that she'd pulled off the first time after five minutes to the time that she'd nursed for three to four additional minutes, she had gained maybe like a half an ounce from milk. My mind was completely blown. She gave me some advice to stay on track. Um, I was allowed 15 minutes max of nursing on each side. Those two weeks leading up to that appointment of my daughter's life were the longest most grueling, strenuous two weeks. I felt like I was failing as a mom because I couldn't get her to a full belly, but I had no clue. This is the kind of support that I'm talking about that's missing from breastfeeding. The only support we receive is from visiting lactation consultants in those first 48 hours after birth in the hospital. You know, the 48 hours where you've just pushed a baby out and your hospital room is like a rotating door, a family, and they're taking your baby for this and for that. And they're trying to like shove this breastfeeding knowledge into your brain. Um, And then they basically send you on your way and say, okay, good luck. So long story short, if you don't hear that gulping sound that comes from swallowing, your baby is done feeding and now you're just a pacifier, which is totally fine. It's totally fine. My son uses me for a pacifier all the time, but knowing is the important part. So how long should I breastfeed for? While we've already discussed the governing agency's opinions on how long to breastfeed, Um, the answer to this question is totally a personal decision with my first, I stopped when my milk dried up, which was around one year. 
Now with my second, I'm determined to do everything I can to keep my milk supply steady as long as he wants to nurse. We're about to 13 months and still going strong. I'd love to make it to two years. We'll see. But totally, totally up to you. Can I get pregnant while breastfeeding? So as many of you that have had children know, one of the perks of breastfeeding, especially on demand, is that it does put off your cycle. Uh, My cycle came back at seven months with my first, and with my second, it came back at 11 months. Um, With my first, she was nursing on a schedule from the age of three months, and my son has been on demand since birth. So while you need a cycle to conceive, you do ovulate once prior to your cycle returning. So because you never know when your cycle is going to return, it is definitely possible to get pregnant while you're breastfeeding. If you're nursing, you usually have an average of six months before your cycle will return, but everybody's different. So be careful. And lastly, I'm having trouble breastfeeding help. First of all, call a lactation consultant. With your health insurance or coverage, you probably have some sort of lactation support built in. And even if you don't, hospitals have great lactation consultants and you can schedule a consult with them and it's not terribly expensive. Also, get online, ask for support. There are tons of free resources online. The Leche League International is a great one, but ask your mom, ask your aunt, ask your cousin, ask your sister. Break the stigma of being silent about breastfeeding. We've got to talk about it more. And if you're comfortable enough to, feel free to post on um, maybe privately on social media for support recommendations on where to go or who to ask for advice or even advice from people that you trust online. With my daughter, obviously I should have known that after 40 minutes of nursing that she was done, but I didn't. As a new mom, especially in the first few weeks, how was I supposed to know? You know, you know, if you're racking your brain for the information that they give you in those first 48 hours, there's no way you're going to recall everything, and there's no way that they're going to be able to tell you everything that you need to know. They do encourage you to breastfeed, and they teach you how to get the baby to latch if you're lucky. And they might tell you how to hold the baby like a football or a cradle and all these different positions. But the continuation of support past those first few hours and couple days um, is absolute crap. Um, Not getting a good latch on the nipple can cause you to have extreme discomfort and pain. And this is probably why most women quit breastfeeding within the first, you know, several weeks of baby's life. Definitely seek out help for this. It could be because of a lip or a tongue tie, or maybe could just have a bad latching posture. Um, There are YouTube videos you can look up, lots of mommy blogs that may help as well. But don't give up. If you want to breastfeed, breastfeed. And a survey of women that quit breastfeeding, 60% of them said they quit before they wanted to. And this is for a multitude of reasons, but there are resources out there to help support women who want to breastfeed. Like I said, La Leche League is an incredible one. I'll put the link in my show notes and it'll also be on the blog post on the website. But get help because breastfeeding is important and there's 
no reason that you should stop before you're ready to. So that's it, guys. We did it. That was a lot of information and a lot of controversial information at that. Please don't be offended by anything that I said. You know, there's a lot of people polarized by the whole breast is best movement and the fed is best movement, but honestly, you have to do what's best for you. The important thing is that you're educated and that you make an informed decision and that you have the support to follow through on whatever decision you decide is going to be best for your family. So I will talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.